Live. It's America's longest running talk show on computers. It's Computer America, bringing you the biggest names in technology with guest interviews, new products, and your emails. Listen live at ComputerAmerica.com on any device around the world. Email the show at live at ComputerAmerica.com or find us on social media. Be sure to check out our website for contests, giveaways, show notes, live video stream, podcasts, and more. You're listening to Computer America. Hello and welcome into the Computer America Show. We are the nation's longest running, nationally syndicated radio talk show on computers and technology. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Ben Crossman, and I hope all of you are having a wonderful day because we have a great show planned for you where, for the entire program, we are dedicated to cybersecurity, cyber threats, new, uh, you know, new uh, happening things that you should definitely know about. And here to talk about all of it with us is the one, the only, Mr. Scott Schober, author of Hacked Again, and of course, our resident cybersecurity, I'm, I'm sorry, our resident cybersecurity expert. There we go. Hard to talk. And uh, yeah, so we're going to get to that in just a moment. But a couple of things, including ComputerAmerica.com. That's where you'll find everything from the show notes, which will have all the links, as well as any videos, articles, anything that we show here on today's program. They will be in one place so that you can go check it out. Also, while you're there, be sure to check out the social media contest brought to you by Logitech. And also check out the live video stream, which you can also find at twitch.tv forward slash computer America. We also have a chat room if that's your thing and you can get in contact with us as we, you know, hey, kind of do the show. So uh, I think, uh, you know, just run through all that very quickly. Again, I hope all of you are having a great day and ready for some computer America. So why don't we go ahead, just bring our guest on and get started because we have a lot to talk about and very little time to do it. Uh, as I said before, he's been on the show many times, and Scott Schober, he should be no stranger to you, but uh, but if he is, uh, he'll tell you all about himself. And uh, Scott, welcome back onto Computer America. How you doing? I'm doing great. Great, great to be back, Ben. Thank you. Happy to have you. Happy to have you. So, yeah, uh, obviously, you know, judging by today's show notes, you certainly have been busy. You've been uh, trying to spread the spread the word about cybersecurity in a couple of places, and uh, we're going to get into your topics. But before we do, why don't we go ahead and give the people an idea of you know kind of what you do in your day job? What what makes you qualified to be our resident cybersecurity expert? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have the privilege of being the president and CEO of Berkeley Varitronic Systems. We focus on developing innovative wireless solutions. Most of them are, are, are focused geared towards cyber wireless threat detection tools, which simply means we're building tools to hunt down cell phones, Wi-Fi threats, Bluetooth threats, and other wireless threats. Uh, we also have a host of distracted driver distracted operator type of tools and alerts to keep people safe on the road, safe on the mine, uh, safe if they're in a train from any distractions that cell phones can uh, possibly introduce. So it's kind of an exciting job to I crisscross both the world of wireless and cybersecurity and get to meet a lot of interesting folks and, and I'm always posed with different security challenges and uh, looking for innovative ways to, to solve those challenges with technology. Absolutely. So there's obviously, uh, you know, a, a lot to, or a, a, at least a lot in the recent past. I'd say 
uh, things really kicked into high gear, obviously, in the past couple of years, but more so as obviously this, uh, you know, this election with uh, the emphasis on hacking being really instead of this idea that, hey, someone's going to take your, you know, your credit card number and go buy a TV somewhere, hacking really turned into, oh, wait, turns out every everything we do is now online be it vote uh, voting records be it uh, you know just kind of socializing be it to yes financial records i mean a lot of our day-to-day and more so it's you know it's not a trend going in reverse it's ever wrapped up or at least it's more possible than ever to be hacked in ways that really are not even apparent. So I think uh, to start off our conversation here, we're going to go ahead and talk about uh, voting machines. And and that is uh, like voting machines are one thing that you'd hope are never, ever, ever going to be, uh, oh, how do you put it? Never going to be hackable. You hope that they've come up with the perfect system that will never be hacked and your vote and voting is as sacred as it ever will be. But you have a story here about uh, voting machines and you know how they can be hacked and how why that's a problem. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and I'm uh, glad you touched on it the way you introduced it because just to clarify for for all the listeners, we we know we always talk about this. Nothing is one hundred percent secure, and there's a lot of different ways. To hack things, and I think that's what part of the concern is. Everybody realizes that elections, I think, by now have been tampered with or have been hacked to some degree. And the question is, how? Well, I think as research goes on and on, what they're finding is there's a lot of ways of killing it. Um, older machines, some of the older machines are actually uh, these are voting machines. Actually, and they were classified as wind vote machines. They actually could be connected through Wi-Fi. So you could have a Wi-Fi connection to your local computer that could download and dump a lot of the voting results, which was popular, it was convenient. However, we all know that Wi-Fi is not that secure. And it was proven many times over. In fact, just recently um, at DEF CON, there's been some questions and one of the voting machine companies was put put on the spot there to, to, to comment because they were not cooperating with some of the U.S. senators and some law enforcement as far as uh, working with them to find out the vulnerabilities and letting hackers get their hands on different voting machines and try to exploit these vulnerabilities so in hopes that they could expose them and make them more secure. You know, it, it could be a physical hack where somebody opens it up and changes an EPROM out of it, the actual code in the voting machine, alter it, unlikely to happen, but possible. It could be some of the older machines with Wi-Fi. Uh, again, most of those have been decommissioned because of the security threats. A bigger problem, I think, is what do you do when you collect all this massive amount of data, be it paper, be it electronic or whatever, from a voting machine? Oftentimes, people aren't keeping uh, in mind this goes to a computer that works over the internet. So if somebody hacks something, a computer over the internet, which happens every single day, that's another way you can get there into the, the chain and mess up the actual vote. How secure is it? Is it encrypted? These questions go on and on. And I think the fact that different states have different laws in place to handle this adds another whole layer of confusion and uncertainty. But the gist of this article that really caught my eye is that the actual voting machine maker, in this case it was called ESNS, they were not cooperating with the hacking community at DEF CON. And DEF CON, they're, they're hackers, they'll rip things open, they'll find the vulnerabilities, they'll again exploit them and they'll share it with the community. So if everybody's not communicating and sharing this, what's going to happen? Those vulnerabilities aren't going to get exposed. They're not going to get fixed. Internal elections coming up less than 90 days. Guess what will likely happen? More hacking to hit the the media, and we'll have more and more stories of craziness going on. 
in in the not too many months to follow this. And it, and I, I I kind of have this question because uh, Black Cat DevCon for anyone uh, for anyone out there who's not familiar, these are essentially kind of hacking conventions kind of deal where people you know were hackers and you know just really security enthusiasts. It, it's gone more from you know because I guess hacking and, and security go hand in hand when it comes to cybersecurity. Uh, they they really get together, show vulnerabilities, and you know companies go there to scout talent, and government organizations go there to scout talent. And voting machines in the past couple of years have obviously been a fun target because I think it was either last year or the year before at I think the same event they actually bought a voting machine off of eBay that was used in the two thousand elections, and they and they went through and they actually found. Uh, you know, people's names and addresses and, and voting IDs stored on the computer, uh, you know, e- e- even after they were purchased on, on eBay. And eBay said that, uh, or at least the seller said that they were wiped clean. There was no, you know, there's no user data whatsoever. And right, surprise, uh, turns out that there was voting records still stored in there after. And, and of course, you know, they, uh, I think if if you're going to be hacked, Defcon and Blackout are a pretty good place to be hacked because you know they're pretty secure and you know they're those are the good guys you know kind of showing off what they can do. So it's a pretty good place to be hacked. But my my question is like obviously voting machines have been hacked before; they can be hacked now, and undoubtedly they're probably going to be hacked in the next couple of months or in the near future. Um, I know that you said that no system is unhackable, but why do you think it's so hard to secure um, voting machines? Is it because they're they're little you know kind of treasure troves and people are really really looking, or are government organizations just trying to do too much with you know not enough real vision on what the goals of a voting machine should be? I mean, wh- where do you think they fall short when it comes to security and these systems? Because it seems like there should be some way that you can make a system that can record a vote. And you know, not have a password of one password. Yeah, I, I, I think you summed it up nicely. Well said across all aspects there, and that's part of the problem. There's no standardization. There's no single voting machine. There's no single methodology. You've got certain areas where they're trying to get votes from millions and millions of the population, and others where it's thousands. So one model doesn't doesn't fit all, unfortunately. There's not adequate training. Uh, there's not a adequate security measures. There's not adequate encryption of the data, data at rest, data when it leaves the voting machine. Is it stuck on a USB? Is it pulled into a, a spreadsheet or other types? That's where the part of the problem opens up. There's so many variations in it. No standardization makes it very hard to make it secure off the board. And, and to your point, uh, I think it is, it is rather comical, but rather true. You can go on eBay and buy a voting machine, just like when when I'm doing developing tools to, to counter um, ATM skimmers and Bluetooth skimmers to get put into ATMs. I'm buying card readers. Uh, I'm buying bezel. I'm buying ATMs. I'm ripping them apart because I want to know where the vulnerabilities are, more specifically where the bad guys put the stuff to steal your card. The scary part is how cheap and how easy it is to buy it on eBay. <laughs> There's nothing to prevent you. And I've got a whole trove of things that I'm becoming an expert on ATMs. And it's easy to do. The same analogy is true with printers. Think about printers. Not much different. Same, same thing to be true about older fax machines. There's a lot of memory that files are sitting supposedly in a printer in an ATM machine in a fax machine, in a voting machine that can be exploited. People say, yeah, I wiped it, but they didn't take an hour to properly wipe it. They probably said, ah, it's clean enough, no one will ever find it. Or they do just a simple tweet, not realizing, hey, it's still residing there uh, in, in, in part in the memory. It can be scraped using the, the proper software. So fundamentally across the board, there's a lot of vulnerabilities with voting machine and tampering. And that's not even bringing in the human element, which which we know is often the biggest weakness there. Somebody's paid off and corrupt and changes the vote that was swinging one way to another way for some set fee. 
we're not even talking about it. We're focusing just on the technology aspect, but if you're bringing human intervention and corruption, it scares me even more. <laughs> and, 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 you know, those are, all, those are obviously very valid concerns. I mean, I've heard in, you know, certain circles, and obviously this may be uh, tech people saying, hey, you know, technology is still the answer here. Um, I've seen tech people really say that the answer to this is not to go back to paper ballots, is not to go back to, you know, getting everyone in a room and shouting, you know, who they vote for, but uh, actual verifiable voting records where uh, right now a lot of voter IDs out there, you go to the DMV and that's a lot of people's first uh, instance of getting a voter registration card. And, you know, it's a, it's a pretty basic kind of ordeal. It's a, you know, it's a piece of paper with your voter ID on it. And there you go. That's it. It's uh, not that complicated. Have you heard of anything that we can do to replace this, supplement this? I've heard of some things like, uh, I don't know, uh, blockchain that you can actually use, uh, you know, obviously blockchain being some kind of uh, virtual ledger that you can compare transactions. And in this case, the, the transaction would be uh, you as an individual and who you voted for, and then adding that up to kind of a national ledger. And so if you ever wanted to verify your vote was counted for who you wanted to, um, you could then trace that back through a particular, you know, just like a, uh, a string of characters for a Bitcoin wallet, a string of characters for your, uh, you know, for your secure, um, uh, blockchain, I guess, voter ID. I mean, is there any solution to this that we don't go backwards? Is there any solution forwards as far as technology goes that you're kind of interested in? Oh, I, I think your point about blockchain is brilliant because that actually would be an excellent use for because, again, you had a public ledger there. You've got security there. It would have to be accepted, and that's unfortunately going to take an act of Congress no pun intended. And that, that's part of the challenge, I think, when you're in the world of politics to get things done takes years. If you look at some of the voting machines that are actually being used, these are not uh, 2018 models that are going to be used. These things are sometimes dinosaurs and archaic. So how do you change them all out? It takes time, it takes money, it takes resources. And I think that's the fundamental underlying problem of things. They need to have almost a, a, and I hate to, to say this because the government's forced to do this, but kind of a mandated, here's what a minimum set of requirements across the board that has to be standardized on, that independently is reviewed by security researchers, bring the hackers in, uh, and, and get all the, the bugs out of it, have a nice bug bounty program, and take this to market where you can replace all of the voting machines so they're secure blockchain proper encryption, proper handling of data, data at rest, when it's in motion, how it gets from point A to point B. Somebody has to look at the entire voting ecosystem properly secure. For, for the most part, DPMs, for example, I would say are pretty secure, with exception to some of the skimmers and other things there that are kind of external threats that are brought in. Why? Because they've spent so much money protecting our money. It makes sense. Well, they gotta they got to treat this, too, as personal information, as, as very valuable, and spend the money and resources to secure it properly, not to band-aid and patch it, which has been done up to this point. Well, yeah, and, and obviously a lot of that has to do with the fact that, well, I, you know, we did go straight from uh, paper ballots, hanging chads, and, you know, punch cards, so on and so forth, directly into the age of computers, and there's going to be growing pains. And I guess a lot of what we're talking about here, and a lot of what this article, you know, highlighted, is that, you know, hey, it uh, these are the growing pains of just a very segmented, uh, I, I guess, kind of marketplace, especially across 50 states. So I think that there's a way forward. There's uh, certainly a place for technology. Uh, I know a lot of people are calling for uh, secondary paper ballots to, uh, you know, kind of reflect what people are doing. But I feel like, I, I don't know, J just because I'm a, I'm a technologist, I really don't like the idea of just having to go backwards because we can't figure it out. I, I, I don't find that a satisfying solution. So um, very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. <laughs> yeah. And, and of course, very interesting going into another election cycle. Uh, to be clear, I mean... There have been, uh, you know, kind of hit or miss reports uh, over the 2016 election, and 
I think they've found a couple of instances where uh, foreign governments or you know foreign people have been able to uh, have been able to infiltrate and see the voting records. I don't think they've ever found proof. I don't know if they're looking for proof, but they haven't found proof of any numbers changing. A lot of the hacking that's been going on that we've been talking about, you know, over the past couple of years, and you know, Scott, you know this better than most. It's not really the idea that you go in and you change everything to one candidate. It's more the idea of the social engineering, the uh, hijacking and manipulating of massive amounts of information and people, and that's the kind of hack that you know we've really emphasized on, which is kind of a social media uh, smear campaign. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. Ca- causing doubt, causing uncertainty, causing confusion, especially if it was a nation state sponsored and wants to look at the democratic process throughout the U.S. and cause people that actually do go to the voting machine to question it. And if maybe that alters it enough for a small percentage of the population to change their mind, uh, I think that's possible. Fundamentally, though, what your plan was great about it, it shouldn't go backwards to paper ballots. You've got government employees that are counting pieces of paper. That adds you a lot of opportunity for mistakes and miscounts and, and, and problems just based upon the sheer size of it. Mm-hmm. You would One would think that end-to-end encryption, a simple app that you put on everybody's mobile phone would allow them to vote if they so decided to, to vote. That would be secure, safe, quick. Uh, the device is already out there. Every single person on the, on the world pretty much has a mobile phone, and I'm sure the majority of those in the U.S. certainly have a mobile phone these days. Um, to me, it seems a lot more straightforward to do something like that. There would still have to be security and, and proper encryption in place for somebody to validate that a third party, but it'd be a lot faster, cheaper, better for people to do it from the convenience of their home or their job or wherever. Right than standing in line somewhere and uh, casting a paper ballot. <laughs> well, and, and of course, those who, who unfortunately don't have a smartphone or any kind of internet access, because obviously there are people there uh, for whatever reason, uh, you know, uh, America does have another huge leverage on this situation, and that's the public library system. You know, uh, libraries all across this country, uh, the, the fun fact that no one can believe, uh, I try to throw it out whenever it's applicable, uh, there are more public libraries in the United States than there are McDonald's. And I know, wow. you know it, it, it's uh, it's crazy to think that any, there's more of anything than McDonald's. But uh, it's true, and they are certainly, like, a lot of people think that books are so passe and there's no place for libraries in today's day and age. But no, they're, to a lot of people, they are a lifeline to a connected lifestyle. So you're right. I think a smartphone yeah. app or even just any kind of web portal, I mean, if I can vote for America's next, uh, next, you know, uh, America's next idol or whatever, I should be able to do it on, uh, you know, on any kind of browser. But, uh, but yeah, let's go ahead and switch off because I think that we could come up with a lot of things that should be implemented, uh, just government being government and what it will do. Uh, it will say that's impossible, and then when they say it's possible, they're going to say that's going to be ten trillion dollars. Thank you very much. So, either way, their solutions, like you said, it's just how easy is it to implement them? Well, that's another story. So, okay, yeah. so checking out some of these other uh, you know topics you have here. Actually, before we move on to that, last month you were on, uh, and and by the way, a lot of people tuned into that one. That was uh, I I don't know what we said that was so inflammatory. But a lot of you definitely went back and checked that out, which is great to see. But on that particular uh, article, this was more of a firsthand account by you that, uh, you know, people that you work with or, you know, uh, your distributors and vendors and, you know, uh, your customers, they were uh, they were receiving threats of. And and by the way, uh, this is the only name for it. There's no real name for this kind of hack. They just call it uh, sextortion which this is an article through Motherboard, where essentially they re- they threatened that they recorded you through your webcam looking at uh, illicit material, and they rec- and they are going to spread it to your entire contact list unless you pay them, and you pay them in Bitcoin immediately. And so you were talking the previous month about, um, you know, how 
people that you know were coming to you saying what is up with this and i wanted you know kind of a follow-up from you uh have you heard anything more of this and then i wanted your reaction to this article saying that this one security firm and i'm let's see security firm is uh is called band breach and they have a a um a spreadsheet of all the different wallets that they can associate with this uh, with this particular type of scam and just in those wallets there's like 770 wallets uh, uh bitcoin wallets they have recorded over five hundred thousand dollars going into those wallets so they can only assume that wow. it's at least half a million dollars so i wanted uh, kind of a follow-up have you heard anything more and what do you think about it being somewhat successful is that surprising um no, anything associated to Bitcoin these days is not that surprising. It's, it's such a, a a well adopted and publicized digital currency, and it still provides a level of anonymity, which is I think what really attracts bad guys and bad things to it. Even though again, Bitcoin itself is not bad. I always add, but this this scam going around, I think it it it, it plays on a lot of people's fear. Well, number one, I think there's a high percentage of people that are watching pornography and other things they probably shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And we'll dive into statistics and things there. So basically, if you put out something saying you caught somebody watching it, you have a very high percentage of success in, in claiming that because so many people do and they don't admit it. And the feeling, I think, for, from a potential victim standpoint is, geez, if I pay Bitcoin... No one will ever associate it. My wife, my girlfriend, my grandmother will not know that I was caught doing it, so I better just pay the piper because this is a, a ransom or an extortion. Right. Different type of ransomware in a sense. Hugely successful. So I, I believe that that much money could certainly go through. And with all successful campaigns, they don't, they don't try to break your bank. They're not asking you for 50 grand. They're asking you for $1,000. $100 in the equivalent of Bitcoin to the U.S. dollar, which means the average person that potentially watched pornography or other disgusting things that's being blackmailed can come up with that money to make it go away, or so they would think. So I think that in part is, is part of the um, success in the campaign. Whether or not they turn on or off your camera, that's been proven that it could be done without the light lighting, mm-hmm. a lot of malware that can do that. Do you think they actually sat there and watched you watch some pervert doing this or that? I don't know. Probably not. Uh, The case is whether they're just collecting a lot of fake money and putting the gun to your head saying, pay up or else. And that's what I think is really going on in this case. Um, Where did the attacker get your password or whatever else or your information, your personal information? It's from some compromised database from wherever you are. Maybe it was you were on some adult site or dating site, or maybe it was from Experian or Target or T-Mobile that we're going to talk about later. Who knows? Putting together the personal information and making a nice, focused, convincing attack is really the scary part. So if you're ever put the gun to your head and someone's telling you pay something in Bitcoin, your best bet is, don't pay the ransom. Don't don't give in because the hackers are making a lot of money and they're enjoying this and they're just getting emboldened as they, they do more and more. Right. And that is the big problem is that, you know, we report that half a million dollars and a lot of these happen, uh, you know, it, it's really no surprise about where the, these things happen. And... You know, not a lot of it is happening, I guess, here in the United States. A lot of these hacks and these kinds of you know, extortion or, or even low effort, low skilled kind of hacks are coming from areas such as India or uh, or the Middle East. Pakistan, I believe, is another big one. Uh, you know, these areas that a thousand dollars may not seem like a lot to you. And they're hoping that they you know that you think that because a thousand dollars certainly goes a long way to them. So, you know, if you may think, well, who's going to go through all that effort for $1,000? And it's like, yeah, there are millions of people overseas that will absolutely do this for $1,000. So the more that they get paid, the more they'll do it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I just pulled up here a, a uh, an example email letter. And just in part, it's kind of funny if you read it. And quickly, you can tell this is not from somebody that's that skilled with the English language. But it says... Well, I installed malware on the adult video clips pornography, and you know what? You visited this website 
to have fun. You know what I mean. You're watching video clips. Your browser started operating as a remote desktop that has a key logger, which gave me accessibility to your screen and also can. Just after that, my software program gathered every one of your contacts from Messenger, social network, as well as email. And then he goes on what he's going to do. Basically, yeah. what should you do? I believe $1,200 is a fair price for a little secret. Uh, pay me for a bit, blah, 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 blah. So, and it even shows you instructions how to do it. Click on this link, so on and so forth. So, the ransom, the extraction takes you to the point where you start saying, uh-oh, there's malware. It was it was done through a browser. Maybe I clicked on the wrong thing. He downloaded a keylogger, which recorded every keystroke. He's got my contacts. He's probably got some of my passwords. Oh, crap. I better do something quick or I'm in trouble. So, again, it's motivated out of fear. Uh, somebody not thinking too fast on their feet might quickly give in and say, ah, it's a thousand bucks, twelve hundred bucks in this case. Here. Well, and, 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 <laughs> and, 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 of course, and of course, to be fair, you know, not everyone has has a Scott Shelburne in their life. So, you know, who do you call in case you know if you happen to be a victim of this? So, uh, but, but yeah, so absolutely, everyone out there, you know better now. Uh, Scott, there's music playing in the background, so we'll be right back. Okay. Halftime here at Computer America. Everyone, stay tuned. More Scott Shelburne, more Computer America, right after this. Everyone, be right back. Greece is cheap. But the airfare costs a fortune. Paris? Not much closer. And again, airfare... What about Puerto Vallarta? Let's face it, flying anywhere is just too expensive. Wait, what's this? Low-cost airlines. With one call to low-cost airlines, you'll drastically slash your travel costs. We're talking insanely low airline prices to any of your favorite destinations. Where would you like to go? London, Rome, Costa Rica, Australia? Wow, that's cheap. So why wait? Call now to learn how crazy cheap it is to fly anywhere in the U.S. or international. Our prices are so low, we can't publish them. The only way to get them is to call to instantly hear the most amazing best deals on airline travel. It's that easy. So call now and start packing. 800-215-4461. 800-215-4461. That's 800-215-4461. We are all Brother Wolf. Ten years ago, a group of locals banded together to create positive change. We took animals into our homes, held adoption events at local retailers, and talked to the community about our mission to help build a no-kill Asheville. A decade later, we have achieved so many victories for animals in need. There's been so much progress, yet there's still so much to do. As part of our year-long celebration, we encourage you to become a member of our special Compassionate Circle program. With a monthly donation of $10 or more, you will have behind-the-scenes access to the work we are doing at Brother Wolf. Our goal is to reach 1,000 members because we receive no government funding. Working together, we can help build and sustain no-kill communities. Learn more at CompassionateCircle.BWAR.org. We are a 501c3 tax-deductible organization. And welcome back to the Computer America Show. It is 32 minutes past the hour. And uh, before we get back to uh, to our guest, a couple of things, or actually one thing, important thing. If you miss any part of today's show, please feel free to check out the podcast version of the program where it's uh, simply today's show rebroadcast wherever podcasts are heard. Also, uh, one thing that we've been kind of hinting at and as it will warrant, uh, in you know, in, if anything ever happens or anything that we need to talk about, uh, we realized, and I don't know why it took us so long to, but if we wanted to kind of go over, just realize any part of today's program that we don't manage to fit in today's show, we will, of course, include in the podcast. So the podcast may start becoming a bit more of a longer forum, but, uh, but you know, we'll certainly let you know ahead of time when that happens. But at any rate, in the meantime, we continue on with our guest, and we are talking cybersecurity with our resident cybersecurity expert, Mr. Scott Schober. And Scott, again, thank you for continuing on. So uh, I'll go ahead and you know kind of ask you any last you know any kind of last uh, thoughts on our previous topic of uh, you know this extortion ransomware kind of deal where it's not even really hacking; it's taking information that is available through different you know sources. Uh, 
password dumps and things like that, taking information that's publicly available, finding email that is in the same way publicly available through email dumps and things like that, and essentially writing a, a little script that will replace the email and the password and blast everyone's email saying, hey, we've got your information, send us money. Uh, any, any more thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. A, a couple things. One thing that really stands out in my mind, oftentimes these things are scarfed or emails are compromised um, when you're buying things online, when you're registering for things, so on and so forth. So sometimes having multiple emails is a good thing. In other words, if you have a Gmail, uh, a, a, a Yahoo email, a burner email where you don't put very important things on so you could differentiate uh, I do that. I have have several different email accounts. So if something suspicious comes up, it's a lot higher probability I know. Ah, this this was probably a compromised email through such and such a scam. Uh, the other thing you could do is is have your um, your email scanned every once in a while. I just had this done recently. In fact, last week, a company called uh, Cyber Analytica. Um, they do some really cool stuff. But basically, what they do is go out on the dark web. They can scan and see where your email uh, may have turned up and where your password may have been compromised. Maybe on LinkedIn when there was a hack there that somebody got your username, your password, your uh, other personal information, and they'll actually list it. So in other words, all of us may have information down on the dark web. It's good to have a dark web scam done every once in a while just to see what's floating down there. That way you can be prepared, and more importantly, it for forces you to update your passwords to secure things, to, to close accounts out that you don't use anymore. Maybe you're not on, I don't know, MySpace or Facebook or whatever it is. Close out accounts and make sure they're properly closed. Don't reuse any of those passwords again, and, and, and using a, a quick uh, scan to make sure that you're, you're not floating your information out there on the dark web is good for peace of mind, just like people do a, a credit check and all those other type of things. It's good to monitor your your digital presence on, on the web and where, where your personal information is. Absolutely. And there, there's one strategy I have never used before. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you've heard about it, uh, Scott, but there's one that uh, I hear about it more and more. I'm thinking about doing it. It's just uh, remembering whenever I sign up for these services. Uh, and it's it's called subtags and subtags for emails. There's uh, depending on your on your provider. I'm going to assume everyone has a Gmail at this point. Uh, so say that your let's say that the bulk of your uh, email, let's say it's Ben dot Crossman, uh, you know, at Gmail dot com. Just as an example, uh, if you sign up for, let's say, a website, a newsletter, any kind of services, anything that you register your email for, you can do Ben dot Crossman and then plus sign, and then you can do, let's say I signed up for a newsletter for, I don't know, I'm really hungry right now, uh, Arby's, why not? So ben.crossman plus sign Arby's at gmail.com. And that way, whenever you see, um, whenever you see obviously uh, an email from Arby's, it's gonna go there and you can be able to identify which address it went to. But then even beyond that, if you see it uh, compromised, such as, you know, as we're talking about, or if we see it, um, you know, sold anywhere else, and then you start getting weird emails, and we know that, uh, you know, the email address comes back as ben.crossman at, you know, plus Arby's, uh, but it's for a furniture store, we know that Arby's uh, sold or lost or in some way my email address was compromised through their server. Like the plus tag doesn't interfere uh, with anything. It still goes to your inbox. It simply adds a little identifier to, uh, you know, to kind of what you do. I've heard about this. I've never done it, but uh, I'm hearing it as a strategy more and more. Uh, what do you think about that kind of idea? Yeah, I, I think for certain people it actually makes sense. I think they often refer to it as a, a superscript text. Mm -hmm. So, so it is a nice, simple way that you can kind of track things and see if things were compromised. The, the challenge of it is if, if the average Internet user is like me, our email is everywhere, and we're logging on everywhere, and tracking and creating all these little nuances can start to become a full-time job. And that's, that's true. The negative. It's not a silver bullet, but I think it's really cool. What, what I've personally done, and this is more on the research side and for the fun side, is is create fictitious accounts sometimes and try to see where things land and, and, and go down the path and see how far somebody can actually get. 
it's kind of scary how far hackers will push things and how quick what you type on the Internet, especially with the world of key loggers, it gets out there and it gets everywhere and it's sold. So be careful what you type. Be careful what you're typing in your browser. Be careful what you're typing into your 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 desired uh, search engine. I love Google. Don't get me wrong. Uh, Yahoo. A lot of different search engines out there. Bing. But at the same time, sometimes I mix it up. I use DuckDuckGo. Uh, no, Keep and, it out and, of everybody's hands. It makes sense. Stay a little anonymous. Not, that doesn't mean you're doing something bad, but it's amazing. Suddenly you're not targeted with a million ads, and you start to say, hey, there's some nice advantages to this. Or go to the next level, go down on the tour, and, and, and have your IP traffic bounced around, and, and, and no one will have an idea where you are unless you're really doing something bad. <laughs> right. No, and, and those are obviously uh, you know very good points as well. I think that a lot of people, like you said, just don't ever really give it a thought. So when yeah, you start to right. really dig into it, you say, oh, wow, there are some real differences to preserving privacy and things like that. But uh, let's see if we can kind of infuse this with, uh, well, I say infuse this as I actually read uh, this article you have about wireless infusion pumps. Uh, behind the scenes here at Computer America, we have a family member down. They are currently in the hospital. Not going to get into that. But I will say uh, the internet and medicine are mixing like crazy. Uh, you know, they no longer, I guess, try to associate you with, I guess, even a name. Like, they learn your name as like a, uh, as a courtesy. You know, the fact that I'm Ben really is just a human thing. Uh, the way that they identify you in a hospital is that they put a wristband on you and they scan you like a barcode, like a box of cereal. And everything that they do, they scan your barcode and say, okay, uh, these meds uh, you were checked up on, you, uh, you did this much exercise, everything is recorded through a bar tag or a barcode or whatever. And, like, and of course, all that's stored in the cloud. Uh, eventually, it's going to be sent off to billing. You're going to get a copy of it. Um, wireless and internet and information and the free flow of data in hospitals has gotten... Um, in my mind, really, really good. I mean, I don't think that's a bad thing by any means. But you have an article here about wireless infusion pumps, and this has to do with medicine and the idea of what should be connected to the internet. Um, I guess there can be a downside to this, you know, kind of uh, connectivity. Uh, absolutely. And why, and why does this stand out in my mind? Just brief background. Um, early July... Uh, this summer, I had my father. He he got rushed, and I, I went followed the ambulance to the hospital. Major internal bleeds, 17 days in ICU. Hmm. He was connected to more wireless equipment than I've ever seen in my life. And at one point, sitting there between prayers and daydreaming and confusion, uh, I was watching all the staff sitting there on computers, entering all the information, not spending time with the patient. To your point. And I said, could you stop a second? I said, what are you doing? Why are you entering all this information from all these wireless medical sensors and this and that? And they said, it's a requirement. And I said, does this help, in your opinion, for the patient? And she said, oh, no, not, not at all. <laughs> this is all hospital procedure, and it's all collected in statistics on mortality rate and different insurance claims and so on and so forth, mm -hmm. which made me more depressed. But it helped me see the bigger picture when you're in the middle of it. There's so much information wirelessly that's being collected on individual patients and procedures and billing and coding and insurance, and the list goes on and on and on. This same wireless is not very different than what we use on our mobile phones or our wireless routers in our house, which we know are all hackable. So... To, to that point, it leads nicely into this when you think about infusion pumps um, that, that are, are very important for people, and they're dependent upon them, and pacemakers and so many other, um, really this is called Internet of Medical Things, really, is where we can kind of classify this a little different than Internet of Things, IOT. It's IOMT, Internet of Medical Things, and it's looking at the entire ecosystem, realizing that if you don't have proper endpoint encryption and identity access management, you can hack into it very easily. 
because so many of these things are, are, are going on in the background and they're somewhat automated, collecting information. So if you could sneak in there and basically imagine infect a infusion pump in this case with some malware that would make it operate a little bit differently, that could affect someone's life. Yeah. Once you get into that that ecosystem, you work across a huge, huge attack surface because there's so many other medical devices that are wirelessly interconnected, collecting all this data that may save lives and may also be used for insurance purposes or whatever else. So it's really to speak of the bigger picture of problems. If bad guys, hackers, wanted to breach in and start exploiting this conduit of wireless connectivity to different types of um, medical apparatus, man, they can cause a lot of damage. And that's really what a lot of things, as we talked about before, before DEF CON, and this year, in fact, at, at Black Hat, the hacking conference in Vegas, it was only a couple of weeks back, they were demonstrating some of these wireless hacks in infusion pumps and other medical devices there just to prove out none of it's 100% secure from wireless attacks to raise the conversation, which it did because we're talking about it now. Your listeners are hearing about it, and, and I think that's a good thing. So it could become uh, better tested and better secured. Yeah, if, if people are willing to hand over... Uh, thousands of dollars for potentially, you know, let's face it, uh, doing things on the computer that statistically you're not alone, uh, you know, watching pornography or whatever, statistically, uh, that's a very common practice. So if people are willing to hand over a lot of money for something that everyone's already doing, imagine how much money they would be willing to hand over if they said that your loved ones are in danger of, you know, being uh, tampered with or for any other reason. Like, there's a lot of money to be made, or at least there's, I guess, a lot of incentive. Luckily, as far as I can understand it, uh, it's it's still pretty complicated. Uh, any of these vulnerabilities so far, a lot of white hat hackers have, you know, whatever they find, they are very quickly uh, secured and plugged up and make sure that, you know, the security is up to snuff. But yes. it just takes, you know, not too many of these before, like you said, uh, large providers, because there's really not that many providers that, you know, work in the healthcare industry, especially here in the United States, that provide care for millions of people. So uh, it, there's a lot of incentive to do it. I hope that no one ever does do it. But uh, this is just like the voting machines. You know, we hope no one messes with the elections. Uh, they're pretty, they're pretty juicy looking targets, I guess. Yeah, true, true. And I think part of the challenge and in- in many uh, hacking scenarios, it, it appears to be a victimless crime. In other words, if I'm a bad guy going to gu- take a gun into a bank, I see my victim. I put the gun up to their head and mm-hmm. rob them or do some other stupid crime. People are a little more hesitant because you could get on camera, they could see you, so on and so forth. To, to digitally follow somebody that places malware is a little bit more challenging, or I should say a lot more challenging, and you don't see your victim face-to-face. Um, that, I think, makes the crime, uh, allowing the, the bad guy to be anonymous, that much easier to swallow. And he probably could sleep a little better at night because he's sitting there saying, well, I don't know who the victim was. Ah, they were probably late in their 90s. They were going to pass anyway. What's the big <laughs> deal? So I got $10,000. A lot of justifications, <laughs> yeah. A lot of justifications. And, you know, uh, that's actually very interesting. I think just yesterday we covered an article about... Uh, over the next couple of months, there uh, the United Nations is going to be heading into a conversation about uh, autonomous uh, killing drones and machines and things like that. And you know what are their role going to be in in the warfare of tomorrow? And I think a lot of, you know everything you just said about being able to rationalize that what you're doing, you're if you're hurting someone, then they deserved it, or you know, or however you want to rationalize it in your mind. That's the same conversation that's going to be happening uh, for, you know, military purposes and, and things like that. So, uh, yeah. but we're not going to get into that because I personally, I know I'm not qualified to talk about that. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and switch up gears, uh, switch to some of these other ones. So, uh, 
T-Mobile, while that sounds, of course, very interesting, if you could give like maybe a two or three minute wrap up of that, because I want to get into uh, maybe some of these security podcasts you, you were listening to or uh, or talk about uh, war games, uh, you know, some of the stuff that you've been doing to uh, really spread the word. So T-Mobile real quick and then one of those other stores. Yeah, T-Mobile, I call this a simply a wake-up call. T-Mobile's been hacked before. Back in 2015, they did announce hackers obtained all kinds of personal information. Back then, it was home address, social security numbers, birth dates, personal information of about 5 million wireless customers. They've got uh, about 75 million wireless customers now. Uh, Out of that, they sent a text message to little less than 5% of the, those that they believe were compromised, that somewhere in the 2 to 3 million people compromised. And it, it, it was only the customers' names, billing zip codes, phone numbers, email addresses, account numbers, and account types. So minimal, some people classify, on the world of personal information. However, it should be a wake-up call because right away, if anyone uses an online password to access their account and any of these things come into play, on other sites, people are collecting this for personal identity theft. It's the accumulation or culmination of stolen information that's packaged together that's very valuable to hackers and thieves. So this is just another piece of the pie that people are putting together with stolen LinkedIn information and compromised Twitter accounts and compromised credit cards from here and so on and so forth. So the alert flags go up and the same old thing, that they're alerting people who had information compromised monitor your accounts, monitor your, your 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 phone records when the statement comes, change your passwords even though your password they believe wasn't compromised. The same old minutia, they're basically alerting people so that way they don't have their share price drop too fast or lose <laughs> shareholders. And so far at work because their stock only dropped 10-15% since this breach happened. So no big, everybody's cyber complacent out there, unfortunately, which is really a shame. But this is just, again, another wake-up call to show, hey, things are still getting compromised. They're being packaged and resold. So keep your antenna up and, and monitor it closely. So, and, and you know, uh, before we move on, I mean, did they say how this was affected? Because the article you have here only says that they were breached. They shut it down immediately. Uh, this obviously, you know, 2 million people, that would be obviously server uh, on their end of the equation. Uh, did they say anything about how this happened other than, hey, we fixed it? No, not really. There's not a lot of, a lot of indication that they fully know it's an ongoing investigation. They'll mm-hmm. probably never fully tell us. The part that scares me more is, like everything else, the initial report you hear something, and if it gets... Uh, crushed by other news media headlines, it may breeze away and nobody notices, was more information compromised? Well, the ongoing investigation will probably tell us they don't believe so, but what if in a week suddenly they tell you now that, by the way, those 2 to 3 million is really 5 million? Oh, and they did get Social Security numbers and passwords, and that's what starts happening. Pandora's box opens up as the investigation goes on and we may find out more so i that's why i say it's a wake-up call stay tuned we'll see which direction it goes right very very well said so let's go ahead and swap over to uh one of these other stories i'm, I'm kind of interested about the podcast one uh obviously you are featured on this podcast so you know we're gonna we're gonna i i'm already mentally preparing myself that we're not gonna be on this list but uh cybersecurity it's something that you'd think only cybersecurity experts, you know, only people in the field would want to listen to this. But I think more and more, as as the show is, is itself is highlighted, uh, cybersecurity effect, affects everyone. And I think some good education and you know general knowledge can go a long way. Uh, talk about these top eleven cybersecurity podcasts that was uh, you know that kind of got your ear. Sure, sure, and and. I'll, I'll let you keep scrolling up there. That may uh, help open it up a little bit as well <laughs> in, in the discussion there. Um, yeah, I, I, I like to, in the past, I've always was a, was a book person, love to read, and I still do. More and more as I'm commuting, traveling, so on and so forth, what I've learned is podcasts are just awesome. And and certainly with this podcast, I may be biased because you do a fabulous <laughs> job there, Ben, and, and certainly Craig and, and others there supporting it. 
because you've got a lot of great information on a regular basis. But what I find is sometimes when I'm when I'm unplugged from other things, you could you could listen to a podcast and you could learn a lot of things. And what I've been doing is trying to listen to more and more podcasts, and this is really a a, a grouping of some that I really learned a lot of things from and enjoyed, and I share a, uh, my favorite episode on each one as well, and that way you know everybody can decide on their own. And some are very familiar ones that everybody's heard of, and some are not so familiar that, that I came across from one way or another and just started listening to and saying, hey, I'm learning stuff here. This is pretty cool. And, and then even the one at the, I think the very last one there is a is a is a brand new one from uh, Cybersecurity Ventures, a podcast, and I, I just started to listen to that. So those are those are episodes that are just launching. I think they launched their first one just the other week. So a, a lot of things to to look forward to on certain ones like that. So I, I mean some like uh, you know Charles Tendell, mm-hmm. great information, great guests. He's very animated. He's a, he's a hacker. His background so. You get it from a nice perspective because he's going to draw out someone kind of like yourself. You're a techie. You're going to draw out technical information more than just your average podcaster. And to me, that's what makes it fun. The host makes the show because well, they're drawing yeah. out tidbits. Yeah, and and Charles Sandell, of course, no stranger to the show. He actually co-hosted Computer America for about a year. Oh, did he? Um, yeah, yeah. Fun fact. Did Charles not know that. Yeah, did he, you learn a lot. <laughs> he he co he co-hosted uh, Computer America for a year. I think back in twenty, oh, I want to say about twenty thirteen or fourteen, somewhere around oh. there. And um, and, and then of course through through us, I I, I don't want to say that we directly you know got him his radio show, but we definitely I I I, I like to to take credit for. The fact that he got his aspirations to, you know, kind of do his own show, get into show business, and really, like you said, he's very animated. He's a very good host, and uh, I'm glad that he definitely made the list. That's that's very cool to see. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and, and of course, uh, we're going to have a link to this in the show notes, of course. You can see the others. Uh, uh, Schneier, Schneier blog, uh, the Cryptogram Security and um yeah so i i've unfortunately not heard of him but hey now we have scrolling through leo laporte can't go wrong with him as well as steve gibson yeah. um csi podcast so cyber security interviews uh that i can see exactly where that uh you know would kind of fit into your uh yeah D- douglas brush does an exceptionally good job there he's a, he's a, a great listen if you get a chance and some of those episodes are really fun Sure, absolutely. Uh, let's see the Security Weekly podcast. Uh, Paul, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Paul As uh, Asadorian. Asadorian. Yeah. There we go. Ooh, there we go. And uh, since 2005, so long, long running. I'm sure there's a lot of uh, great content, of course, there as well. And hey, see, I ruined it for myself. I scrolled down the list really quick. I knew uh, Computer America was there. Very happy that uh, that you included us. And of course, you uh, you join us here uh, every single month to talk about what's new. So I'm glad that well uh, yeah, th- thank you so much for for including us, and uh, happy to be there. So Southern Fried Security Podcast, just gonna run through these so we can get one more story in. Uh, the Silver Bullet Security Podcast, CyberWire, uh, and of course Human Factor Podcast, as well as Cybercrime Studios. I mean. Obviously, there's, uh, I'm sorry, wow, voice crack. Um, there's 11 that you listed here. There's many, many more out there. Uh, uh, you know, kind of one more time emphasize why are you, you know, why did you decide to highlight cybersecurity in the form of a podcast? Why is that better than uh, technical papers or articles or things like that? Why are cybersecurity podcasts so, uh, you know, so meaningful for you now? I, th- I think podcasts are just a great medium as opposed to the traditional uh, articles. People read articles because they're so busy, they read the headlines. More and more when you're commuting, when you're on the train, when you're traveling, when you're at the gym, when you're running, riding a bike, I, I-, I throw on my headphones and I listen to podcasts. Um, I have downtime. If I'm writing, I'll put a podcast on in the background. When I'm up at my lake fishing, sitting on the dock, I'll throw a podcast. There's a lot of opportunity where you could listen to things that you don't always have the ability to be reading traditional things or watching TV or a movie or something else to to gather information. So you're picking up details. It's a lot easier to get the little nuance and the details by hearing experienced guests and, and somebody that's drawing them out, the host hopefully 
so you can learn so much more. So I just love the medium. It's great, and uh, I'm always looking for for new podcasts, and I ask people, hey, recommend them Mm -hmm. so I can add it to my my portfolio and and continue to learn more and also at the same time spread the word so people can enter that community if they're not already doing so. Absolutely. So uh, last thing I I wanted you to touch on, uh, obviously we only have about 30 minutes or so, uh, Cybersecurity Ventures, and you interviewed Robert uh, of, uh, um, so you you interviewed Robert uh, Hart, Arjavec, thank you. And, uh, yeah, talk about that just real quick. Yeah, he, he, he's a great guy. Um, uh, Cybersecurity Ventures is an awesome platform. And, uh, again, I had their podcast mentioned there, too, on, on the list, a newer one that just came up. They mm-hmm. do tons of statistics and reporting on cybersecurity. Probably most every cybersecurity practitioner and researcher goes to cybersecurity Ventures, Cybersecurity Magazine, Cybercrime Magazine, to learn, to gather statistics. They're probably the high, highest quoted source of anything I see out there. So if you get a chance, then you certainly take a closer look at that. But I had, to, I had a nice sit-down um, that was recorded, a 30-minute interview where I dive in deep and get to ask uh, Robert Hershevik, who's kind of the, the cyber shark. Many people are familiar with him from Shark Tank. But he also has an exceptionally... Um, well-run cybersecurity company, and they analyze these different And Scott, I, I, I apologize for doing this to you, but I'm going yeah, to sure. cut you off there. We're just flat okay. out of time. Uh, everyone, links to these things in the show notes, really highlighted there. And again, author of Hacked Again. Scott, thank you for coming on the program. Hey, great to be on. Thanks again. All right, everyone. There, yep, and everyone, we'll see you back here on Monday through Friday. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Bye, everyone. Computer America. <laughs>